What up? Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond. It is NBA Finals time, and I'm in studio with Joseph Cacharo. What's going on? Man, it, uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind, but here we are. Two teams are left standing. It's the Golden State Warriors and the Toronto Raptors. The two teams that we picked preseason to make it to the finals, each of them, I guess you could say, took kind of windy paths to get here. And going into that last round, I think we both expected the Warriors to come through, but we both picked the Bucks. And it was certainly looking that way after the first two games. The Raptors come roaring back against a team that hadn't lost more than two games in a row all season long. And the Raptors take four straight to close that out in six games. Just an incredibly intense series that, for so much of it, the Raptors kind of looked down and out of. But every time they were able to sort of take the, the Bucks' best punch get back up on their feet, dust themselves off, and come back. And they close it out with just a really emotional Game 6 at home. And now they're going to the finals for the first time in franchise history. So let's, uh, let's just talk about that quickly before we move on to, to like finals preview. And we can talk about the Bucks offseason as well. What did you feel like you learned about both of these teams during that series? So if you remember, I... I you know, like you, I also picked the Bucks to win the series. I had them in seven. But then when we did the podcast, I changed to Raptors in seven. Um, yeah, well, our last pod, I was going to say, we, we had a bit of a back and forth right. about whether Kawhi or Giannis had been the postseason MVP. And I think it's safe to say, you know, uh, I think you kind of took me to school. <laughs> uh, you had Kawhi, and I was, I was making a case for Giannis. And I do think as much as, you know, the Raptors win four straight games – and, and to win a series in six, it makes you feel like, oh, this team was clearly better. I, I don't think that was entirely true. I mean, it, it's important to recognize just how slim the margins in this series were. The Raptors win the, the series, six games, by a total of six points. And the minutes when both Kawhi and Giannis were on the floor, dead even. Like, these teams were very, very evenly matched, and it was just kind of a question of, a couple of bounces going Toronto's way. Their shooters shooting better than Milwaukee's did. And I think them just having a really solid defensive game plan that they were able to execute to perfection. Yeah, I think um, one thing we learned, and I'm not saying it automatically makes Nick Nurse a better coach than Mike Budenholzer because Budenholzer is more proven in the NBA, but Nick Nurse outcoached Mike Budenholzer in this series. Um, I think it's not something we learned because it's been a criticism in the past, but I think we were reminded of how inflexible Mike Budenholzer can be in the postseason. Well, okay, so let me ask you then. What what specifically did you think he was unflexible about that you felt like he needed to adjust? I think Giannis needed to play more minutes. I think, um, he yeah. needed to adjust when Giannis was coming out of the game. Like game six, for example, he rested six times. And the way the substitution patterns have been set up, Giannis sits for the first 90 seconds of the fourth quarter when the Raptors entered the fourth quarter on a 10 nothing run that had already started changing the game. Like, those are the moments when, as a coach, you have to say, all right, usually I try to get him some rest here, and I don't want him to have to play the whole fourth, but we're on the road in an elimination game, and the other team's on a 10 nothing run. You know what? I'm going to just start him for the fourth quarter and see what happens, and if I need to rest him later, I will. You don't have to stick to this script of when you rest him, and how— and Budenholzer was steadfast. But was he sticking to that script, or did he see that Kawhi wasn't coming out for the start of the fourth and decided to give Giannis a breather at that point in time? Again, though, I just think— the Raptors are on a 10 nothing run. You're in an elimination game on the road, man. You you need to like keep that tide from coming, you know, washing you away. You think of game 5 when Giannis leaves because he rolled his ankle, but he 
clearly looked ready to return. He was at the scorer's table, and the Bucks had an opportunity to call a timeout. They had two timeouts remaining in a two-point game with one minute left in Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Finals. Budenholzer doesn't call the timeout, that doesn't get Giannis back in the game. Their best rebounders sit standing at the scores table waiting to check in. Marcus Saul grabs an offensive rebound that helps seal the deal for the Raptors. These little things popped up throughout the series when it came to Giannis's minutes. Budenholzer was steadfast throughout the series that he didn't believe uh, Antetokounmpo's minutes needed to be adjusted because the way he saw it is they needed Giannis to be at 100% for all of his minutes. And so they'd rather have him at 100% for 37 or 38 minutes as opposed to maybe 80% if he played 40, 42 minutes. That's bogus, man. That is a ridiculous mindset for an NBA coach to have this late in the season. Steve Clifford had the great quote in the first round between Orlando and Toronto where he said, during the playoffs, your best player tired is better than his backup rested. Chris Middleton's a great player. There are other players on the Bucs that are great players, but Giannis at 75 or 80% for an extra three or four minutes in the conference finals is worth more than any other Buck at 100% in the conference finals. And the fact that Mike Budenholzer is the only guy who failed to grasp that is a colossal failure on his part. And then after the series... For him to say, because I think Giannis played 40 minutes in Game 6, they still lost. But again, he could have pushed him more. And for him to say after the series, well, if we can't win with Giannis playing 40 minutes, then Toronto just deserved it. It's like, what? What kind of a head coach says that? You contrast that to Nick Nurse, who before Game 6 said when it came to minutes, this is an uh, anything-it-takes game. Nick Nurse, who played Kawhi Leonard 52 minutes on a gimpy leg in Game 3. like. But Nick Nurse, and here's the point I'm trying to make, and I I agree with most of what you're saying, but I I think it's very easy to retroactively look at these decisions and when they don't work out, say that they were failures. But what are we saying about Nick Nurse? He left Kawhi on the bench for the first three minutes of the fourth quarter, and the Raptors happened to continue to eat into that Bucks lead, and actually by the time Kawhi came back into the game, they were up by two. Now, let's say that didn't work out that way. You know, let's say the Bucks managed to extend that lead while Kawhi is on the bench. Then we're saying the same things about Nick Nurse. And I just think it's a little bit too easy to fit these things into a, into a particular narrative um, when we're able to look back and see the results for what they were. And I think in the moment, there, there are so many more things to consider. And, and I think it's worth pointing out that Giannis was gassed at the end of a lot of these games, right? And in the fourth quarters, he was not particularly effective, well, at least at the offensive end. That's on him, too. Get in better shape next season. You're an MVP candidate. Yeah, Get I mean, in better shape. It seems like he really put in a lot of work on his body this season, right? Like it, He did. He, he added so much muscle. Like it, It's hard to imagine him being in better shape than he is. But uh, I do think like at the end of most of these games, especially games five and six... Kawhi just looked so much fresher than Giannis did. Even though he's playing on one bad leg, he was able to impact the game in more ways than Giannis was. And part of that is just skill. Like, the fact that Giannis doesn't have a jump shot means that him getting his offense is going to be so much more difficult. Whereas Kawhi, like, if he's tired, he can still get a switch, dance with a big guy on the perimeter, and pull pull up. up. And that's just a luxury that Giannis didn't have. And I think, look, it's... Again, like I want to say, the, the Bucks were very, very close to advancing to the finals, and then we're telling a completely different story. And we're not talking about the things that Giannis has to do right. in order to take the next step. But, you know, at the end of that game six, there are a couple possessions where it's like Giannis sort of drives into the teeth of the defense. They build that little wall around him. I mean, one possession in particular, there was like a little under two minutes to play. The Raptors were up five. And Giannis drove in, and he was like maybe five or seven feet from the basket. Marcus was there, but still playing a few feet off of him. 
he absolutely had room to either take another stride and t- try to get to the rim or just put up like a little floater or push shot. And the fact that he doesn't have enough confidence in that in-between game, I think is the thing that really showed through at the end of some of these games. And I'll say too that the fact that the margin was so slim to me is another is another reason to be so frustrated with, okay, obviously not everything Budenholzer did, but these like little things I'm talking about, when the margin is that slim, if anything, that's, that's more frustrating for a fan base, right? To think we were so close, maybe had you done this differently, it would have made a difference. Like, I go back to game four, and I know they ended up getting blown out in that game, but I'm sitting there in the arena, like, completely perplexed as the Bucks continue to double and triple team a hobbled Kawhi Leonard who can barely make it up the floor and leave good shooters open who were making shots that game. And then to have Budenholzer again say after the game, like, those are our defensive principles. Like, we, you know, we'll look at the tape and see what we can do, but we don't think we have to change much. And again, it's like, man, you can make in-game adjustments and then go back to your regular defensive principles the next game. Like, just because you make an in-game adjustment doesn't mean your entire defensive philosophy is changed for the rest of, like... No, but I think their between-game adjustments were actually pretty on point. You know, putting Lopez on Siakam... The Raptors had a good counter to that, which was in Game 6, they used Siakam as a screener a lot, more than they had, I think, at any point in the series and maybe throughout the postseason. So that was a good counter-adjustment by the Raptors, but there's that. There's having Giannis on Marcus Gasol to take his offense out of the game. I think he waited and too long to put Brogdon back in the starting lineup. I think that's probably true as well. But even after they did that, it's like you did that in, in Game 4, and they didn't win another game in the series. So it's like sometimes there's only so much you can do. And a lot of people were critical of their strategy to start switching those Kawhi pick-and-rolls because he happened to burn Lopez with a couple of step-back threes. But Brooke Lopez's contest, at least on one of those threes, was perfectly acceptable, and that's just incredible shot making you kind of just have to tip your hat and this is what i mean whereas like results sometimes just color the way that we talk about these these things and i think we lose sight of the process sometimes which often is pretty sound and i don't think buttonholzer had a great series but i don't think it was as bad as some people have made it out to be and i think a lot of this stuff just comes down to the bucks supporting cast kind of letting Giannis down i mean if eric bledsoe plays like he did during the regular season we're telling a completely different story here and the fact that at the end of so many of these games, the Bucks didn't feel like they had any other option but to just keep using Giannis as a battering ram to try and bust through that wall, that they didn't trust, say, like Chris Middleton to create an isolation or Eric Bledsoe to be the guy initiating the offense from up top. They didn't seem comfortable using Giannis as a screener. They didn't do it that often. And, and, and the one time they tried... At the end of that game, they, they kind of messed it up with Brooke Lopez. He sort of dove into Giannis's space on the roll, and that's why Siakam was able to come and bust that up and force a turnover, and that basically sealed the Bucks' fate. So I just think maybe they didn't have enough reps diversifying their offense because what they'd been doing with Giannis initiating from the top of the key had worked so well for so long, and then suddenly you know they run into a problem that they couldn't think their way around, and they didn't have enough trust in any other element of their offense to be able to change things up. You mentioned Bledsoe's shooting split in the playoffs was 41-24-71. And look, what if, was it in the conference finals alone? I mean, it's I, I he shot he shot under 20% yeah, was, from 3. It was insane. Um and the Raptors were obviously very content to just let him keep firing. You know, between him and Giannis, obviously you'd hope it's Giannis that takes the bigger leap uh with his three-point shooting, but Bledsoe's just signed a new four-year, $70 million extension. Obviously, they want Giannis to stay long-term. Like, if both those guys are going to be there long-term, they're both ball handlers, one of them has to take at least a modest step forward in terms of their pull-up shooting ability, or else the Bucks are going to run into the kind of half-court troubles they did against the Raptors. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, just in general, I think, you know, the look, they don't need to overhaul their defense. They were the number one defensive team in the league, but I do think they can find a better balance between protecting the rim and, you know, providing some type of resistance on the perimeter in terms of shooters. Like I mentioned it before this series started, the Bucks, uh, they gave up more three-point attempts than anybody in the league. The difference between them and the second uh, worst team in that regards was the equivalent between the second worst team and the 12th worst team. They gave up a lot more threes than any other team, and a lot of them were open. And at some point, that can come back to bite you. You look at the, this series against the Raptors. The Raptors were struggling shooting the ball in the playoffs. They were due for some regression, obviously, and then they shoot 37% better than any other conference finals team against the Bucks. And, you know, that's with Danny Green missing like 80 open shots, it seems. It's like. also with Fred Van Vliet shooting 14 of 17 sure. from three over yeah, the last Yeah, so maybe those games. balance out between exactly. him and Danny. But, again, if you give up a bunch of open looks, like that's part of your defensive system. Mm-hmm. But and they didn't. Play- but, but look, they didn't lose this series at the defensive end. No, they didn't. They had a 84 offensive rating in the in half, the half court, court yes. in this series. Yeah. You know, like it, this was an offensive failure, yeah. not a defensive failure. Yeah, Giannis needs to become somewhat of a better shooter. Um, yeah, but even like you know, if it's not, if it's not his three point shot or his ability to hit pull ups in the mid range, it's like may, like he's got he's got to refine his post game maybe yeah. a bit. He maybe he needs to have a floater or yeah. a little push shot. He shot you know, twenty two percent outside of three feet in the playoffs. Right. So think yeah, about and that, I think man. that's it, it's yeah. And honestly, like I think Eric Bledsoe was basically at the same like out, outside of the restricted area shot probably around the same percentage. And it's I think they showed throughout the season that it's you know they can have one guy who can't shoot when everybody around him can and when the one guy who can't shoot can basically just do everything else at, a, at an elite level but when it came time you know to find different counters for what the raptors were throwing at him he, he didn't have enough of those things in his bag and i think that's you know probably what he's going to spend the offseason working on and i ex- fully expect him to come back better next year let's move on from there because uh you wrote about the bucks very interesting offseason ahead and you know, I think ordinarily you'd look at this as the sort of stumbling block that all great teams need to hit before they can ascend to that next level. And I think the offseason that the Bucks have coming up actually complicates that because they might not be the same team in the next few years. So, so that really starts with their free agents this year and their big ones, right? It's Middleton, Brogdon is restricted, Lopez is unrestricted, and they don't have his bird rights. Uh, Nikola Mirotic, I think, after the showing he had in the conference finals, is almost certainly gone. That was, we don't even really need to spend any time on that. But just he was like a waste a, of space on the court. Really there. disappointing, yeah. and and especially after you know we talked a lot after the trade deadline about what a great get that was. To see him totally disappear like that was pretty jarring. I think the Marcus All pickup might have been a little better. Yeah, um, and then you got George Hill, who has an eighteen million dollar team option, which. I fully expect to be declined. Not he was very useful for them, obviously, and I think they would like to have him back. But they need that eighteen million dollars more than they need George Hill right now. So, let's start with Middleton. Where do you see that going? I mean, look, I, I think you got to bring this trio back of Middleton, Lopez, and Brogdon. And I think look, Middleton's getting a max contract. Probably, uh, we talked about this last week. Like he's not worth it on the surface when you consider that he's not, you know, one of the ten, twelve, whatever it is, best players, but. He's an all-star. He's a two-way player. He did a good job defending Kawhi you know, when tasked with that responsibility. Mm-hmm. A team like Milwaukee, a market like Milwaukee, 
they've got a better chance of contending by just retaining talent as opposed to trying to replace that talent with cap space. That's not happening in Milwaukee. And also, just the way the salary cap is set up with bird rights, I mean, you know, you can go over the cap resigning your own guys. Just because you let a $25 million player walk away doesn't mean you got $25 million in cap space. There's no way for them to replace, I don't think, what Chris Middleton brought in free agency. So if you don't think he's worth it, fine. But you're probably not going to be this good as a team in Giannis's tenure again. Like, it, right. it, you have I, to bring him back. And even Lopez and Brockton, like, those three guys accounted for, I think it was 42 or 43% of all of their three-point makes this season. Mm-hmm. So much of... You know, the way they were able to open up the floor for Giannis Antetokounmpo and the way this offense operated was because of those guys and their shooting ability. And I think even if you let one of them go and you don't replace it with, you know, equal shooting in the lineup, their offense is already taking a step back. The thing with Middleton that people would probably ask is if you lock him in on a max deal, you know, $30 million a year, basically. Jesus. Once they do that, they're already basically at the cap. That's before even factoring in Brogdon. If you do that, you are kind of tethering yourself to Middleton as your number two. And is he a good enough number two for for this team to become... I mean, I thought they were a championship contender this year. I really did. So maybe they can continue to be that. I think there's definitely some risk there. I agree with you, though. I don't think they have any option to replace him, and I think that they're sort of over a barrel for that reason. And with Brogdon, it's kind of the same thing. I think they'll wait that one out and see what kind of offer sheet he gets. What do you think? I mean, I'm feeling like it's probably somewhere in the realm of like four years, 80 million. Yeah, no, I'd agree. Like, he's going to get paid, man. This guy's... So so that, in that sense, you know, they're then going to be creeping up toward the luxury tax. And the thing with Lopez, like, I don't think... They, they're going to be able to keep him. I, I, I think Lopez... Not will, having his bird rights is huge. Right. So they can really only give him like a minimal raise because they, you know, they're not allowed to go over the cap. They can't sign him to whatever figure they want. Like he, he's played himself out of their price range. Now, he's talked about how much he loves playing there. This was... I mean, as much as like he put up better numbers in those years in Brooklyn, this was probably the best season of his career. This is the best situation for him, probably. I, as much as he can talk about how badly he wants to be there, he's going to be able to get so much more money somewhere else. So I think he's gone, and I think that hurts a lot. I'm looking at like potential free agents for this, this summer and ways that the Bucks might be able to replace what he gave them. It's kind of bleak, right? Yeah. Like to get that combination of volume three point shooting at an above average level and not just not just hitting threes, but hitting like twenty eight foot threes as the trailer on the fast break, like with a pretty quick release for a guy his size, and then offering elite rim protection. That's just not a package that you're gonna be able to find really on the open market for the, the mid level or even the taxpayers no. mid level, right? Like one these, guy did that in the NBA this year. Yeah. Brooke Lopez. So these are the guys that I came up with who could conceivably fill that role at a discounted rate. Okay. Dwayne Dedman, Maxi Kleba, Jamichael Green, and Noah Vonley. That's it. Those are the only guys. And none of those guys have a, a track record of doing remotely what Lopez did this season on either end of the floor. But those are the kind of guys who, you know, you take a flyer on them, you get them in the system, and you know, maybe they can give you like 
70 or 80 percent of what Lopez did but it is just tough to find a player like that they could look like a completely different team if if he's not back and that's why like you know the the piece I wrote about the Bucks today is kind of like how they came undone in those six nights and and where they go from here and I ended it by saying and I think I said this on the podcast last week too is like I just though through no fault of their own um in terms of the way the contracts lined up but it's looking to me like the this this Bucks team that just won 60 games is going to join this long list of great teams in NBA history that come to realize that their first chance was actually their best chance and maybe their last chance. And it's like you lose Lopez or you lose one of these guys, you take a step back. And I know it sounds like Giannis is happy there and they can offer him literally the largest extension ever next summer and they have a good chance to keep him, but you man, you just never know. But I think Giannis is enough of a like a transformational talent he is to at least get like they're get, always going to be in they the have mix. a path to perennial contention for sure but he needs a supporting cast right he had a pretty good one this year maybe not a great one but he had a pretty good one they won 60 games and they came up short in the conference finals like you can have a transformative star like that a great team win 60 games and because only two teams get to the finals and one wins a championship you can have all those things and more often than not still lose you know yeah. like I, I really thought this was the year that they could have broke through and actually won the title. And again, you know, it, I think they might be one of those teams that realizes in a couple of years, like, man, that, that year was that first year of what we thought was a, you know, run of three, five years of contention was actually the best chance we ever had. Well, really, this is just going to come down to Giannis at the end of the day. So there's that story that Malika Andrews wrote about how a 2020 finals run would reportedly be the carrot that might entice Giannis to sign a long-term extension, a Supermax extension. So that that really leaves them with a lot riding on next season. And I think for that reason, that's why they got to do everything that they possibly can to bring back the core that they have. Because I think they've proven that this team has what it takes to make a finals run. And I, I fully agree with what you were saying. They don't have a way to replace any of that on the free agent market, the trade market either. Like they just, their option is to bring these guys back or to risk losing Giannis in 2021. I mean, I think that's important to recognize. There are still two years, right? He can sign that extension next year, but he is still two years away from free agency. So that gives them like a bit more runway. But I think it's pretty clear like next year is going to be a huge one for them. And uh, this offseason is just going to be super interesting through that light yeah um they they broke through and rose to power this year out of nowhere but they could very well fall off just as quickly man yeah i will have to wait and see man but uh, obviously a very tough way for their season they, they're really magical season to end you know I, I do hope that that they're back in a similar shape next season because i think they were a really great story and a really fun team to watch and i think Giannis is just such a fascinating and incredible player that to, to have this thing blow up and for him to ultimately leave and go elsewhere, I, I just don't think would actually be good for the league on the whole. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. 
Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL, and the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. I hope it works out in Milwaukee, but for now, we're moving on to the finals. Let's talk about those finals. It's the Raptors and the Warriors. This is the first non-LeBron team to come out of the East since 2010. And it's the first time since, what, 2014 that it won't be a Cavs-Warriors final. So a lot of newness here. I think it's it's a little bit difficult to talk about this stuff without knowing what Kevin Durant's status is going to be. But I think, you know, let's talk about it with the assumption that he is not going to play, at least for the first couple of games. because yeah, I'd imagine he's back for games three and four right. at Oracle. But I think, actually, that the, like the series might be won or lost in those first two games. So let's talk about that, okay? Because I, I actually think that this has the potential to be a really fascinating series that could easily go either way. And I think both teams have so many options as far as how they decide to guard the other the lineups they try to roll out, the tactics they employ. So I'll start with this question for you. What kind of role are the bigs going to have for either team? How quickly are we going to see them downsize? Does Cousins have a role? Is Looney finally going to start? Because as much as I think he's played more minutes than any other center on the Warriors, he's, he's come off the bench every single game this postseason. Can Marc Gasol stay on the floor? And you know how do the team's defensive coverages change? depending on the personnel they have out there. I think if he's healthy, Cousins will have some sort of role, at least to start. Um, I, maybe from nothing else, but just like a humanitarian standpoint, I, re- I truly believe Steve Kerr is going to at least give him an opportunity. Seriously, like I, mm-hmm. I don't think Cousins would have worked his way back and then they'll tell him, like, sorry, big fella, but we don't need you in this series. Like, I think they'll at least give him an opportunity to show that he has a place and then whatever happens after that, we'll see. I do think if Cousins does work himself onto the floor, that's a win for the Raptors, to be honest with you. I think any size advantage the Warriors think they might be getting by going to Boogie, Marc Gasol can you know, pretty handily neutralize. And I think what the Raptors can do to Cousins on the defensive end, especially if maybe he's not 100% with his leg, they can, they can pick him apart in the pick and roll, quite yeah. frankly. So I think he'll have a role in it once he's healthy. I just don't know how long that'll last. I think what they can and should do is try to avoid having him on the floor when Kawhi is out there because the reality is the Raptors I think are quite a good pick and roll team but as far as pick and roll ball handlers go they don't really have that guy like Lowry once upon a time was an incredible pull-up three-point shooter that pull-up three hasn't really been there for him this season the way that it's been in the past Fred Van Vliet the same thing he's a really good shooter off of the catch not particularly good off of the dribble I actually think that Boogie could survive in the pick and roll by sort of dropping back against pretty much any ball handler not named Kawhi. So I think if they split those guys up and they make sure that Cousins is on the floor when Kawhi is not, that he can actually survive defensively. And then at the other end, you know, you talk about how how Gasol can maybe neutralize him. Maybe you want to make sure that he's going up against Ibaka instead. And, you know, even if it is Gasol out there, it's like, you hope you run pick and roll with Boogie as a screener. Maybe the Raptors have to switch, and then you can 
throw Boogie into the post and he has a mismatch and either he can beast that mismatch or they're sending help and he's a really good passer out of the post. Yep. So they do have options there. And I, I say all this without knowing what kind of physical shape he's going to be in because we saw, like, even just coming back from the Achilles, he wasn't moving around particularly well. Now you throw in this calf injury and... Quad, right? Whatever. Yeah. Leg injury. Yeah. Um, it's tough to know, like, how mobile he's going to be. But... Uh, I think there is a role for him there, but I think the important thing is making sure that him and Kawhi aren't on the floor at the same time because Kawhi is the one guy who, like, he can target Cousins and just take him to school, uh, whether it's a switch or whether it's on a drop back and Kawhi is pulling up. Uh, I don't know that there's any other Raptor who can really do that kind of damage against him. Yeah, in terms of the Raptors bigs, I definitely think this is a series for Serge Ibaka. Um, Big one for him. Right, I, I stylistically, he obviously fits the series a lot more than Marcus Gasol does. Um, and it's kind of crazy, like if you think about how valuable Gasol has been to the Raptors during the playoffs. They don't beat the Sixers mm-hmm. without him because of what he did to Embiid. They probably beat the Magic, but not nowhere near as easily without what he did to Vucevic. Um, and even against he the was, Bucks, he, he was, was so good defensively. Yeah. He put on a masterclass uh, defensively against the Bucks. And and we say all that, and yet we could be looking at a series where his minutes are severely reduced just because of how the Warriors, you know, can play him off the floor and. Serge Ibaka needs to have a good series defensively. Forget what he, you know, offense and crashing the offensive glass and all that. He needs to have a good series defensively, defending in space. Yeah, so this is what's interesting to me. Obviously, the best way to defend the Warriors' pick and rolls is to switch. And the Raptors have the personnel to switch one through four, at least. When Gasol's on the floor, he's the one guy who you don't want to switch with. Granted, I think he had some pretty good moments switching out onto the perimeter against the Bucks. The Warriors are not the Bucks. okay? Exactly. It's a different situation. And I, I think as much as Gasol, I think, is better than people think getting out on the perimeter, like, against the Warriors, I do not think that that is viable. They don't have to drop him as far back as they usually do. I think he can come up a bit higher and have some success, but he's going to be vulnerable. That doesn't mean that he's not going to have a role in this series, but I think we're going to see a lot of instances in which, you know, Ibaka at the five is an option, although I don't know how much more viable he is switching out onto the perimeter than Gasol. Like, maybe a little bit, but not that much. But I think the Siakam at five lineups are going to be the ones that are... It looks uh, better when Serge does it. He gets in that crouch like a couple times did against Giannis. No, I do think, like, his lateral quickness is maybe a little bit better than Gasol's. uh, So I'd maybe have a bit more confidence in him switching, but you don't really want to do it with either of those guys. So if they want to go to a look where it's switch everything, it's going to be Siakam at five. And we haven't seen a whole lot of that throughout this postseason, but I think that is going to be a bit of a bellwether in this series. How effective can they be with that lineup against the Warriors' Hampton five lineup? Or, I mean, without, without Durant, that Hampton five lineup isn't really a thing. So is it, are they running some facsimile of that lineup with, say, Sean Livingston there or Alfonso McKinney there? Or are they just keeping a traditional big on the floor at all times until Durant comes back? Uh, yeah, I don't see the Warriors going super small without Durant because I, I actually think the Raptors might be able to take advantage of that. Like With a lineup with Siakam at the five against a small Warriors lineup without Durant, I think the Raptors can win those minutes. And and, and in terms of when Durant does get back and they do go to that Hamptons five lineup, again, I think the Raptors might be better equipped than any team to give it trouble. You know, like you, you go Siakam at the five and you have to go small... We talked about how much Fred Van Vliet and the, some of the bench guys like struggled with size against Philly and even at the beginning of the Milwaukee series. Well, 
if you have Lowry and Van Vliet on the court, that's not a bad combination in terms of chasing Steph Curry and Klay Thompson around screens. Like, both those guys are really adept at chasing guys around screens, kind of getting in their bodies, fighting through screens. So if you guys, those guys on the perimeter, you've got Siakam at the five in a small ball lineup. Kawhi is Kawhi. Danny Green can play the three in a small ball lineup. At some point, it sounds like they're going to get OG Ananobi back. Like, I really like the way that the Raptors can match up with Golden State, whether it's big or small. And I, I honestly don't know if there's another team in the league that can do it quite this well. I 100% agree with that. I think they have the personnel to match up defensively really nicely. And I look, the Warriors are still going to get their points. Their offense is too good for them not to. But I think the Raptors have the goods to make it difficult, to muddy things up a bit. It's going to be really important for them to make it a half-court series, which they did a really good job of against Milwaukee. They limited their turnovers. They slowed the pace down. And they dominated Milwaukee in the half court. And we've seen teams do that against some iterations of this Warriors team in the past. I think those 2015 and 2016 Cavs teams are instructive in that regard. They were able to really slow things down, grind it out, make it a half court series. They did that by crashing the offensive glass. And they did so at the risk of seeding fast break opportunities to the Warriors. The Raptors, I think their, their strategy in that regard was pretty interesting against Milwaukee because... They would crash the offensive glass like very selectively. For most of the games, the early parts of the games, really the first three quarters, they were sprinting back and doing everything they could to try and limit what Milwaukee could do in transition. But then in the fourth quarters, late in games, when they felt like they sort of had a chance to go for the jugular, that's when they started sending a couple of bodies to the offensive glass and coming up with some back-breaking offensive rebounds. So even though the Bucks won the offensive rebounding battle in the series. The offensive rebounds that really stand out are the ones that the Raptors were able to grab late in those games that clinched the wins. So maybe we'll see them employ something similar. I mean, it'll depend on the personnel that's on the floor. And if they feel like they have a size advantage to press where the Warriors are going small, Andy Baca is the biggest guy on the floor. Maybe they have him crashing while everyone else gets back. Uh, it's risky, but it, it's like I said before, like going into the Portland series, it's kind of a risk you have to take. When you're at a talent disadvantage, you need to press every advantage that you have, and any opportunity to gain extra possessions uh, is one you have to take advantage of. And so that's one, and I think you know the turnover battle, again, is another where the Warriors can get turnover happy, and the Raptors are very, very good in the open floor. I expect them to win the possession battle um, because they're a pretty low turnover team. They take good care of the ball. And what part of what goes into that is as much as the Raptors' offense can be really fluid, motion-happy, pass-happy, and they can be very successful with that, I think in this matchup, they're kind of just going to go mismatch hunting. And I think that might be the right approach. Like, you have... Like, a big question for me is how effectively can they attack Steph Curry? I, I, don't, I don't think the Rockets did a good enough job of that. And realistically, the, the Raptors, in that series against Philly didn't really do a good job of going at J.J. Redick. Their answer a lot of the time was like to try and have Danny Green post him up. And funny enough, we saw them do that with Danny Green against Steph Curry in that December game that the Raptors won without Kawhi, and it was very successful. But I don't think that's the way to go about it. I think the way to go about it is to screen with Curry's man. The Warriors have their counters to that, right? They'll do the pre-switching where they try and flip him out for either Clay or Draymond or whoever the closest available better defender happens to be. They'll do that pre-switch, or they'll have Steph hard hedge and hopefully give themselves enough time to recover. And the Raptors just have to 
move quick enough to attack the Warriors' defense while they're in scramble mode, while they're trying to you know, keep Steph out of that switch. I don't think the Rockets were able to do that well enough, although they did put him in foul trouble, which is another thing that the Raptors, I think, are going to try and do. But just make it difficult for him, man. Like, go at him every time down the floor. Siakam can attack him one-on-one. Kawhi can attack him one-on-one. Try and force that switch. And, and if they have to play iso ball and exploit mismatches, then that's the way to do it. Yeah, well, you mentioned that they have to they have to do it quickly. That's the big thing. They have to make up their mind very quickly because the Warriors are smart enough to get that pre-switch done in time like if you don't attack it quickly that advantage you thought you just had against Steph Curry's gone because they're smart enough and quick enough to pre-switch it so you know what you were just saying to me the most important thing is that the Raptors need to be very decisive and very quick in hunting that mismatch and another thing you know you talked about the turnover battle yeah the Warriors you know you think of the biggest stages they've been on the last five years they haven't exactly taken care of the ball on those stages you go back to game seven against the Cavs in 2016 and Curry's behind the back pass and like they haven't really learned from that they're still even though they're a middle of the pack team in terms of turnover rate it's not like they're terrible we've seen them they're prone to turn over the ball in in some of the biggest stages of a game the Raptors the most efficient team in transition as we've said like 30 times in these playoffs The, the Raptors can take advantage there they're it, this is the thing when, yes, the Warriors should be favorites. Obviously, they, you know, especially when Durant's there, they're probably the most talented team ever assembled. But I I don't know if people are appreciating enough that the Raptors actually have some advantages to exploit here. And the um, when you look at the advantages on both sides, it's a lot closer than I think people realize. I'll say this. I think this Raptors defense is at worst the third best defense that this Warriors team will have had that to play Grizzlies in the playoffs. One they played a few years ago up there. Um, 2015 Grizzlies yeah. and 2016 Thunder. Oh, okay. Yeah. Those are the only two that I can really think of that can kind of compare. And that 2016 Thunder team was also very good offensively. The 2015 Grizzlies team was not. The Raptors that are away. Grizzlies team, they, they, were, they went up 2-1 on the Warriors. They did. Right? So yeah. that's what I'm saying. Both of those teams gave the Warriors a lot of trouble. And they did it with length and physicality. And excellent defensive game plans. So I, I think that the Raptors really do have the goods to make this very difficult. To me, it's going to be more a question of how effectively they can score than how effectively they can defend Golden State. Because like I said, there's only so much that you can do against yeah. the Warriors defensively. And I think anything that you can do against them, the Raptors will do against them. I think that you know the offensive end for the Raptors is going to be where the series is won or lost. Um, I'm I'm curious to see how the Warriors defend the Raptors. I'm guessing that Draymond won't start on Kawhi, that they'll maybe save that for end-of-game situations, but for the most part, it'll be Clay and Iguodala who handle that assignment, and they'll continue to have Draymond as a helper, whether that means he is guarding Siakam, playing off of him, and, and ready to help at the rim. I mean, Siakam's shooting is going to be important. Can he knock down those corner threes? If Draymond's playing off of him, are they able to continue going into those dribble handoffs and using him as a screener in the pick and roll and taking advantage that way? Can Looney be attacked? I mean, Looney's been really good and he's looked very good moving his feet. But against Kawhi on a switch, um, I think he might struggle in a way that he hasn't to this point in time. And I don't expect the Warriors to come in thinking that it's going to be like that they're going to be able to coast. But I think it might be a little bit jarring for them just how different it is facing this team than it was facing that Blazers team. Like, look at that Blazers front court and back court. I mean, that you could argue that all five Raptors starters are better defenders than anybody on Portland. 
So it's going to be a much different challenge. Yeah, and again, like you talk about jarring. I know I've said this before, but like this Raptors team, man, like you look at a guy like Kyle Lowry and he's played hard his whole career. There's no surprise there, but the level of effort and the level of just like all out, this is my chance-ness, let's call it, that he's playing with in this playoff run. The look in Marcus Saul's eyes. The you know even though he's won a championship and a Finals MVP already the the determination in Kawhi Leonard's eyes right now to to prove something after what happened last year and what people said about him like there is yes the game the this games in the series are going are going to be won by which team plays better basketball no doubt but there is something to be said at least a little bit for straight up will you know when you get to this point of the year and you've played this many games and this many minutes and. You know, I I mentioned on the pod, I think, in the, early in the second round that, like, this Raptors team, to me, they remind me a little bit of that 2011 Mavs team that just, there was something about it. And it was like, man, at, at the end of the day, those guys just seem like they realize this might be their last chance, and they just want it more. And then I think back, again, I know it's another sport, but I talked about, like, the Washington Capitals in hockey last year that kind of had that look, and that's the way the Raptors have seemed to me in the playoffs, and... Yeah, I'm sure the obviously the Warriors want it too. The Warriors don't not want it because they've won it again. But you talked about how jarring it's going to be for them to go up against this Raptors defense. I wonder if it'll be a little jarring, at least early on in Game 1 or early in the series, of just, you know, have they run into a team like this since the 2016 Cavs? You know, that's that's this the Rockets. The Rockets last year. True, yeah. I mean, the Rockets last year and this year, I right. think. And, and last year, again, the Rockets, you know, they had them. They, they had them on the ropes. So I think... Whether the Raptors win or not, I don't know. Not, neither of us know. But I I just think the, they have everything is there for them to make this a super, super competitive series that I think is going deep. I, can't, I don't think this team, this particular collection of vets, could have come this far to not make this thing a series. I agree with that. Um, but, I mean, it is the Warriors after all. So you never know. I, my feeling is that it's going to be a long and competitive series. And, you know, the Durant question sort of looms over all of it, but we've seen how good the Warriors can be without him. Uh, I just, again, those, those first couple of games in Toronto are going to be so telling. And I, I, I do expect that the Warriors will steal one probably game two. And then from there, you know, can the Raptors win one at Oracle? That becomes the question. And uh, that's, it's going to be a big challenge. Uh, but I, I do think that they have the personnel and the willpower to do it. And that... 2011 Mavericks comparison is, I think, pretty apt because that team also clawed back from a ton of huge deficits and showed just like a resolve and a character that carried them through the entire way. And and with the Raptors, it's been the same thing. I mean, they've been hit in the mouth a bunch of times. They lose game one against Orlando, and I know Orlando was never really a threat to them, but still, they face that sort of adversity right off the bat, and they come back and win four straight in dominating fashion. They go down 2-1 against Philly, and man, was that game four tight. On the road, man, in Philly. It was it was a, an absolute slugfest, and they squeak that one out, and then they squeak out that, that game seven when you know neither team seemed to be able to score down the stretch. They go down against Milwaukee after losing a gut punch of a game one and then just getting their doors blown off in game two. Game three, I mean, and this is another sort of inflection point where we have to look at it and be like, man, this could have turned out so much differently. Because that game is in double overtime. Kawhi is playing on one leg. Kyle Lowry has been fouled out of the game for like 15 minutes. It really seemed... Powell also fouled out and he was having a good game. Yeah, Norm fouled out. It really seemed like the Bucs were, were going to be able to outlast them and win that game. And if it's 3 nothing, I mean, 
like the Bucks realistically probably win the series in five. They somehow managed to pull that one out and then blow the Bucks out in game four, come back from a massive deficit to win game five on the road, and then do the same thing in game six, where they're down 15 points with 14 minutes to play, go on a 26 to three run and close it out at home. I mean, it's funny because like a friend was asking me about this yesterday. Like, did I think that, you know, past iterations of the Raptors, like, would, did they have the sort of toughness and the character to come back from those kind of deficits? Or would they have just folded? And it's not like Raptors teams in the past didn't have grit or toughness or character. But this Raptors team is just way better. And the simple answer is, when you're better, you're obviously more likely to come back yeah. from big deficits. Like, they're just really good. And I think the, the the most important thing is like they're able to get stops, and that's really what allows them to claw back into these games. Like their defense can lock in, and when that happens, when they're getting consecutive stops, that's how they're able to chip into these leads and and pull these things out when it seems like they're dead in the water. Yeah, whether it's because they're just simply better, which they obviously are, or mentally tougher, whatever, than past iterations of the Raptors. The easy answer to your friend's question would have been, have you ever heard Vince McMahon's entrance music? <laughs> no chance in hell any of those other Raptor teams come back from the adversity faced uh, by this one. And, you know, this apologies to uh, non, I guess, Canadian listeners that might not get this reference. Although Warriors fans should if they're old enough because it's an Oakland thing, too. But, you know, I, I was wondering and I was talking with friends, even though it happened when I was only three years old and I don't actually have vivid memories of it, but is. The Raptors' Game 5 win at Milwaukee, this franchise's version of Roberto Alomar's Game 5 home run at Oakland in 1992 in the sense of like franchises that you know could just never get over the hump and it seemed like the type of thing, well, they're not winning this, they're down, mm. they're on the road, whatever. And, and then that moment or a game happens and it's like, whoa, they might really do this. Yeah, and something Nick Nurse said after that game was he thinks that the temperament of the team tends to flow from its best player. And that Kawhi was the most even-keeled player that he'd ever seen. You know, he talks about never getting too high and too low, but a lot of players say that, and he's like, Kawhi really does embody that. And Kyle Lowry said the exact same thing after that game. It was like, they, they take their cues from him, and if they're in a tight spot and they're looking over to him and he's relaxed and has the confidence that they're going to be able to come back and win, that rubs off on everybody else. And the Raptors have played like that team all postseason long, and obviously they're faced with a much different challenge against Golden State, but I just think the attitude and the way they've carried themselves and the way that they have played when their backs have been up against the wall give me a lot of confidence that they're not going to get blown out, that they're not going to fold at any point in time, and they're going to keep fighting. And I, It's not like I can't say the same thing for the Warriors, but I think that they maybe are a little bit more fragile just because of all the moving parts that are there with that team, they're probably going to have to reintegrate KD at some point in the series, which could have a disruptive effect. I just, uh, I don't know. I think there is a difference between trying to win your fourth title in five years compared to, you know, for the Raptors, most of them being on this stage for the first time. I mean, that could go one way where the Raptors are overwhelmed by the moment and don't play particularly well, or it could manifest in terms of their hunger and their will. And maybe that carries them through. Uh, I just think it's going to be really interesting, really fun. And it's certainly not, in my mind, like Warriors all the way. Over, under, two and a half wins for the Raptors in this series. Over. Same. Um, I, 
haven't made an official pick yet. I made a, like a an emotional Twitter pick, which I may or may not stick to, but I did say Raptors in seven. I don't know how strongly I believe that, but I like we've been saying for the last you know twenty thirty minutes. I just I like the way that they can match up. I like the number of options that they have to defend Golden State, and I just like the the moxie and the character of this team. So I'm I'm hoping and praying for a really competitive series and. You know, if it comes down to it, I I have a lot of faith in Kawhi, man. Like, this has just been an all-time playoff run for him, and he really has a chance to put a stamp on it. As, um, I Yeah, I've been saying all year and all playoffs that the I know you had taken the field early against the Warriors, and I kept saying that even though, even though I was the one saying, you know, here are all these cracks in the foundation of the Warriors, and it could come undone in the end. I've, I've stayed steady in the fact that I do think they were going to pull it off this year and that through all this adversity and through all this kind of infighting and all the all these rumors and innuendos that they were going to find a way to just pull it together, barely survive, get that championship, and then you'll see the end of the Warriors. And, I mean, it's probably weird to turn on that now. I, do, I think this thing's going seven, which is surreal to me because I'm considering the fact that, like, in a two and a half weeks we could be talking about a game seven of the nba finals in toronto canada um knocking on wood here. yeah i i think this thing's going the distance man i i really believe these two teams are that evenly matched especially with kevin durant missing one or two games to start the series mm-hmm. um if that's the case if durant misses the first two games and they're both in toronto do you think the raptors have to win both of those games in order to win the series probably yeah to win the series probably yeah but, but again, it, it's so hard to say that because, you know, I'm looking at it from the perspective. It's like, man, if it's 1-1, I don't know if they get one in Oracle. So then they probably come back down 3-1, win one. But, like, then I don't know because everything we've just said Warriors about Warriors have never blown a 3-1 lead in the finals before. <laughs> yeah, so. for real, right? But, no, but, like, everything we've just said about how evenly the Raptors match up with them, how hungry they are, it's like, well, I don't know. Like, is it really that crazy to see them winning one game at Oracle? Like, no. No. So, that, so. so that's why I'm saying I like, get... Sure, it feels like if Durant's not there, they have to start up to nothing at home. But I don't like. Do they really? Do they... I I don't know. Honestly, <laughs> exactly. I don't. We don't. I, I, I'm sure it's, it's a terrible answer for a podcast, but we don't know. Right. I think all bets are off, and um, like I said, I just think this is going to be a pretty unique defensive challenge for the Warriors to try and solve. And if if they get punched in the mouth in Toronto, if they go back down 0-2, how do they respond? I, I, as much as they seem like they're coming together at the right time and blew out the Blazers in the conference finals and outlasted the Rockets after KD went out, like the Blazers is not really a good indication of, of what that team actually is. And the fact that they got down double digits in, in three of those four games maybe doesn't bode particularly well for, for their ability to do the same thing. Like, and maybe that's just a question of like they'll come in laser focused from the jump and they're not going to let themselves get into a deep hole because they know what's at stake and they know who they're going up against and they know that it's not going to be the same thing. But I, their defense hasn't really been good in the playoffs, man. I think they ranked 10th out of 16 teams in playoff defensive rating and they've gone up against some very good offenses in Houston and Portland and the Clippers, but... I think it's safe to say that like the Raptors' defense is much, much better than Golden State's at this point in time. Does that mean that the Raptors' offense is going to have more success against Golden State's defense than vice versa? That I can't say, but um, I think there are enough matchup advantages here for the Raptors to think that they can pull this off. 
Who is going to be the best player in this series, Kawhi Leonard or Steph Curry? I mean, that might be the question that decides it, right? Um, I'm going to say I'm going to say Kawhi. So am I. And I'm going to say Kawhi because the Warriors can't attack Kawhi exactly. at one end of the floor, whereas the Raptors can turn Steph into a liability. And not only not only are they going to attack him as a way of generating offense, but they're going to attack him as a way of tiring him out and making it more difficult for him at the offensive end. And I think the Raptors have a lot of really good off-ball defenders who aren't going to be bamboozled by his relocation. I mean, he's certainly going to get free for some threes, but whether it's Lowry who's guarding him, whether it's Van Vliet, whether it's Danny Green, I, I like what you were saying about how the Raptors can go small and get away with it. Like if Lowry is chasing around Clay Thompson, I think that's fine. With Clay, he has such a quick release that it almost matters more to track him and stay in contact than it does to like bother his shot when it's a set shot. And if they want to try and take advantage of that size mismatch by having Clay post up Kyle Lowry, believe me, the Raptors will gladly take that. That's going to grind Golden State's offense to a halt, and Lowry just delights in taking on bigger dudes in the post. So I, I think... They just have so much flexibility in terms of what they can do. Another thing I'm interested to see is, like, who does Kawhi start on? My feeling is maybe he starts on Draymond so that... He can be a rover? Not so that he can be a rover, but so that he can switch onto Steph and neutralize those Steph-Draymond pick and rolls, which, until KD comes back, that's going to be the bread and butter of Golden State's offense. And if they have Kawhi there to switch on to Steph. And I mean, Siakam can basically do the same thing. And this is what I mean when I say like the Raptors just have so many options. I, I don't know, man. I think like here's, here's Golden State's counter to that, right? As you, instead of that, you have like Looney set the screen. So it's Gasol who's involved in the pick and roll. But then Draymond is like chilling off ball. And that's when Kawhi can be a rover. So I think they maybe start in that alignment. And not that the Warriors won't have counters to that counter. Um, I think this is going to be a really fascinating chess match, but you know, the more I keep thinking about it and digging into the numbers and the matchups, the more confident I am that the Raptors can actually pull this off. Yeah. As for the Kawhi note, yeah, I agree with you. Maybe it's even like Iguodala or so, like whether it's Iguodala, Draymond, someone, I I feel like he's going to start on a quote unquote non-scoring threat. I, I don't think we're seeing him start on Steph or Clay just because KD's not there. Mm-hmm. And I think that will allow him to um, exploit some switches defensively and be a bit of a rover. And in terms of the last thing you said about just talking, yeah, I'm like, just like think about everything we've said, um, very reasonable things that we've discussed over the last half hour, right? The way the Raptors match up on both sides of the ball with this team, um, their their competitive will, their sheer will, will, um, the hunger of these vets, the fact that Kawhi, even in a series of Steph Curry, and we'll see when Durant comes back, is probably going to be the best player in this series. The Raptors have home court advantage. It's like you you think about all those things and it's, to me that spells it's there for the taking i i i think the raptors can pull this off i i if i had to pick right now because of the fact that we know durant's missing at least one game i think i'd lean raptors like i i think i'm going raptors in 7 man oh man um i think i might say the same uh, one last question so if and when durant does come back you know we saw steve kerr just straight up start the Hamptons five lineup from the jump against the Rockets. Do you think he does the same thing? No. No? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. You think Iguodala goes back to the bench? Yeah. I, oh, man. I, I mean, why not? Why, like, why wouldn't they just start that? 
Did he did he start it in every game against the Rockets before KD got hurt? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Oh no, he yeah, he did because he was le- he basically was leveraging their like talent advantage in that series. Yeah, I I guess he will then. I thought that I thought in that Rocket series for some reason he didn't start them every game. Yeah, I mean I'd have to go back and look, but I know for a fact in the first two games at least that he started okay. that. Then, yeah, then yeah, they probably will. I was thinking that. He was rolling that lineup out there for a ton of minutes, but not actually starting them. But if he started them literally the last time they were together, then I'm assuming he'll start them again. Yeah. Um, and then do the Raptors respond by starting either Ibaka at the five or Siakam at the five? I think they probably would respond by starting Ibaka at the five, not going you know all the way small yet to start, mm-hmm. seeing how that plays out. Um, but yeah, I, you know, all due respect to Marcus Saul, I, I don't think they can start him if the Warriors are starting the Hamptons five lineup. Yeah, I mean, I, we'll just have to see how well he can hang. Uh, because like I said, they're going to try and avoid switching him. And one thing that I thought actually the Blazers had a lot of success with, even when Cantor was out there, was when it was anybody other than Draymond setting the screen for Steph, they would blitz. And I think that's a pretty good strategy because you don't really have to worry as much about Kavon Looney, say, on the short roll as you do with Draymond. So even if Steph manages to slip that pocket pass through, you're pretty comfortable with Looney handling in a four-on-three situation as opposed to it being Draymond. Um, They're going to be faced with a lot of tough choices, but I'm really interested to see how they answer. And I guess we've made our picks. We're both saying Raptors in seven. We uh, we just picked the Toronto Raptors to win the NBA championship. Okay, man. So there you have it. Uh, The finals are kicking off in Toronto on Thursday. We will be back probably sometime early next week after the finals are underway. Um, But for now, we're signing off. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all soon.